I have brought a text to you that I think is very challenging this afternoon, found in Philippians 2.5, part of our scripture reading. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I want to begin this afternoon with an inspiring vision of the very thoughts found in the mind of Jesus concerning the remnant church in the end time. And for this revelation, I would like to turn to the book of Isaiah. But before we do, I want to uh, clarify a question that will arise in some of your minds. You see, since the prophet Isaiah lived some 700 years before the birth of Christ, we know that Isaiah spoke of the conditions of the church of his time. But the question, as you would ask me, is how come that you are referring to those things that Isaiah wrote and we are now living 2,700 years later than his time? How can you say they refer to our church in our time? I have a quotation that will settle this for you. It's found in Selected Messages 3, verse, chapter, uh, page 338. Each of the ancient prophets spoke less of their own time for ours so that their prophesying is a force for us. Now that clarifies something for us. So when I read to you from Isaiah today, and he's talking about the conditions that were back there, they are also the conditions that face the church today. Please keep this in mind. And you see, Ellen White substantiates the scripture, for this is what the scripture teaches, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. All these things happened unto them for examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so when we read here from Isaiah, we are actually reading about things that are happening today within God's church. So if you'll turn to Isaiah 5, the first verse, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Can you see this vineyard up on the hillside? It's a beautiful vineyard. It's the envy of everyone in the community. The vines are lush. It's such a beautiful uh, vineyard been cared for. And what does this vineyard represent? In the seventh verse of the same chapter, we read, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so we're talking about God's church. This is the vineyard. No doubt about it. And keep in mind the inspiration, again, that what was written then about the church applies today. I hope you're beginning to understand the purpose of my meeting here with you, for in verse 2 he tells us about his church. It says he fenced it, and he gathered out the stones thereof, 
and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and lo and behold, it brought forth wild grapes. What a picture. Now let's look at some of these pertinent details. It says he fenced it. In Desire of Ages 5, 9 and 6, the divine law was their protection. He put a fence around it. He put the law of God around to protect his people. And then it says, he gathered out the stones. Stones represent false gods. When a man is preparing a ground to plant, in some parts of the country they go through with their wagons and they dig up all the stones. They want to have nothing but very fertile ground. He took all the stones out of it. You remember even Jesus Christ referred to himself as a stone. He said, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. And so he took all the false gods. He went through all of Cana and said, destroy everything, do away with them. And then it says, he built a tower. Desire of Ages 596, this was a symbol of the temple. You find that in finally the time came when they were well established in the land of Cana and we have that beautiful temple built, the most gorgeous building that ever existed in this world, built by Solomon under the direction of God. So he built a temple. Then it tells us that he made a wine press and this was the sanctuary system. He wanted the people to understand how they could know God, the way to God, how he could take a sinner and separate sin, destroy the sin, but save the sinner. And this is what the sanctuary is all about. In fact, I am working on a series of ten tapes that I will start distributing by the Lord's will the first of the year on the sanctuary. I trust to make it so simple that even a child of eight to ten years of age will understand what the sanctuary is all about. And it said he, he put a wine press in there. He did everything he could do. And then it said he planted it with the choicest of vines. In Second Peter, in First Peter, the second chapter in verse 9, it says, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you might show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so he put the best of seed, the choicest of vine, and he expected then for it to bring forth fruit. And why not? He bestowed upon it the greatest of privileges, all the abundant goodness of heaven, and he looked for this vineyard to bring forth the principles of God, representing the very character of God. But alas, it brought forth wild grapes. 
What a picture, what a tragedy. Jeremiah 2 also adds in the 21st verse, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine? I don't know about you, but many places around the world I have gone out into the jungles and into the wayside and I have seen these beautiful grapes growing wild. And when you pick them and you taste them, they're bitter. They're worthless. They pucker the mouth until you have to spit it out and you can't get rid of it for hours. And this is the condition, he said, Israel is an empty vine, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself, Hosea the 10th chapter, verse 1. What a disappointment it must be to God. In the fourth verse he said, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have done to it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, behold, it brought forth wild grapes. Time and time again in the Old Testament time, we find God's people going a-whoring after strange gods. Why is this? Wanting to be like the nations around them, wanting to join in marriage with the enemies of God, following heathen customs, pagan traditions, polluting the very sacred temple. When these things were written, you will find in these prophecies that they actually brought pagan sun worship into the very temple of God and were there taking and worshiping the sun god and they were carrying on the most immoral pagan rituals, even burning their own children to the idol of Moloch in the temple grounds. Unbelievable! He looked for grapes, luscious, the kind that just melt in your mouth. And here they puckered it. They were worthless. Isaiah 1, 2 to 4, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished, I have brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The oxen knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They have gone away backwards. What a picture that God paints here of his people. Now notice carefully, these are the things that brought about the wrath of God. Why didn't God destroy them as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 1, 9 to 10 tells us the same beginning of this book, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. And then he speaks to the leaders of his church. Hear, O word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. It's very clear what he's talking about here. Did you notice 
a very small remnant, as some have said, a remnant within the remnant. And I trust that this afternoon I am talking here to the remnant within a great church that claims to have millions today, a very small remnant. God has always had a remnant, praise his name. He has always had a people, even a small remnant. And this brings me to the conditions of our church today. This is what happened back there and what is happening now in the end time. You see, God called a people out of Egypt, and today God is calling a people out of Babylon. And back there he gave his people a prophet, Moses, who gave them direction in every walk of life, but they would not follow him. And he gave us a prophet today in the writings of Ellen White that cover every aspect of our life. Will we follow it and be found in Cana? No. It seems somehow like the church is the same that it was in the wilderness. They had to, for 40 years, stay out of the heavenly Cana. And this is why today we are not in Cana. We are not following the counsel that God had given to us. We somehow are like Israel of old. Let me mention just a few of them. Take this matter of debt. Somehow we, I'm speaking of the church at large, we have followed worldly wisdom. We have built gigantic medical institutions the size of which we can neither operate with our own people nor can we pay for it. And if you compare the Seventh-day Adventist Church in membership to the bills that it owes today, comparing it with this nation and the condition financially of this nation, we are both facing bankruptcy because we did not follow what God has told us. And he gave us a system of education, a system that if it had been followed would have been superior to anything found in this world today. And yet, we decided we wanted to be like the world and we joined the accreditation system and we sent our teachers to worldly institutions to get their degrees. And when they came back, they have been teaching for years, those wonderful, precious young people, they have been teaching them the things of Babylon, which they learned to get their degrees in Babylon. What a tragedy. Is it any wonder that God says he looked for grapes and he found wild grapes? And today, because of this, we have many within the church who are feeding the flock with new theology when they should be preaching boldly the three angels message that Jesus will come come with mighty power preparing us for a new world and we have today leadership who is taking us into Babylon rather than out of Babylon
I was astounded this week to learn that the minister of our largest church on the West Coast at Loma Linda publicly encouraged all of his people to follow him Thanksgiving Day over to the cathedral in San Bernardino where he was going to participate with a Roman Catholic bishop in conducting Thanksgiving service. Taking the people of God into Babylon when God says, come out of her, my people. Nothing could be more tragic. We are following today in the steps of the church of old, just as God said would happen. And today, because of this, we find those who are teaching within the church the doctrines of St. Augustine of the original sin, instead of teaching us how to become filled with the Lord Jesus and his righteousness. And we hear today of those within the church who tell us that we may sin until Jesus comes because of these things that are being taught. And then more and more I'm getting calls all over North America of men who are preaching that there is no sanctuary in heaven. One of the pillars of our faith in which we have been told we shouldn't touch a pin. And I have spoken here in Myrtle Creek about a book written by Jack C. Chiara, Beyond Belief. And I want to tell you, I received a word-for-word -word copy of the last sermon that he preached just a few weeks ago on the sanctuary, and you wouldn't believe it. Absolutely. He has no conception. Oh, yes, there's a sanctuary in heaven, but all heaven is the sanctuary. There's no such thing as the holy and the most holy, for God and then he uses the scripture, has many rooms in his palace. And he goes on, there is nothing about getting hold of forgiveness. There is nothing about being sanctified in the last days. There is nothing about the atonement of Christ before God the Father. It was all done at the cross. Exactly what you will find in his book. And this is being preached everywhere. So we are saved as a corporate church, not as individuals. So they teach today. So you can sin and still be saved, for the church is going to be saved. And when it comes to the law of God, away with it. That's legalism, that which God put around us to protect us. What a picture. No wonder God's wrath is waxing hotter and hotter as we end the, near the end of time. Now, there perhaps will be some here and some who are listening to this tape that will say, Brother Nelson, how dare you speak of the church like you do? Because God does. Listen to what he says. Volume 5, page 456. The same disobedience the same failure which were seen in the Jewish church have characterized in a great degree 
the people who have had this great light from heaven in the last message of warning. I didn't say that. God says that. It should startle us. Shall we, like them I'm reading, squander our opportunities and privileges until God shall permit oppression and persecution to come upon us? That's an amazing statement. She tells us we are following in the same steps as the church back there. Now this brings us to our church today. Why doesn't God destroy us as he did Sodom and Gomorrah? Because there is a very small remnant. Thank God for those people that are crying out, those people that say, I will not be led back into Babylon. I will come out and obey God. I will provide him with grapes that reveal the character of God. Isaiah 1, 9 and 10, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Oh, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. I'm not talking about any new organization, for God says there is not to be any. And I'm not advocating that we should leave the church. The church is going to go through, but God is going to separate these two parties and the liberals one of these days are going to go flying out and God will have a very small remnant. And I aim to be among those who will be faithful. Amen. Let's consider what Christ is doing for us and has done for us to make it possible that we can be the remnant, the very small remnant that will bear the fruit of righteousness. You see, the purpose that Jesus came to this earth was to restore in man the divine nature. He left something in heaven when he left. We read about it in our scripture reading. He emptied himself of the power of his Godhead. He didn't come here as a God. He came here as a man. In Redemption, page 53, when Jesus left heaven, he there left his power and his glory. Now, I want you to notice this and follow me carefully here. There are those, you know, who would teach us today that the reason that Christ lived a sinless life was that Christ in his humanity was also God, having a power that is not available to you and to me. And that's not true. In Signs of the Times, Mark 17, 1887, Jesus laid aside his own divinity and he clothed himself with humanity. And this was why Satan exalted as he did, for he was sure that he could overcome Christ. He couldn't do it when he was in heaven and he failed, but now that he had become a man, he said, ah, now I can overcome him. But this apparent helpless babe, this apparent helpless human being, brought with him a power when he left heaven. 
Follow me closely now. In Signs of the Times, March 4, 1897, Christ laid aside his royal robes to come to this earth, bringing with him a power sufficient to overcome sin. Now, perhaps you've never thought of this before. When Jesus Christ came, he laid aside his divine power, he put aside his Godhead, but he did bring with him a power. And this power, it says, was sufficient, I am still reading, to overcome sin. Now, what was this mysterious power that he brought with him? A power that was sufficient to overcome sin. It was the Holy Spirit. He literally bathed himself in the Holy Spirit. He surrendered himself to the Holy Spirit. He gave himself completely into the Holy Spirit that he might have that power of the third person of the Godhead. In volume 7 of Bible Commentary 922, the Holy Spirit is his representative in our world to execute the divine purpose of bringing to fallen men power from above, power that we may overcome. As a people, we ought to be pleading for the Spirit. We ought to be praying for this power. You see, this is what Jesus meant when in Psalms 47 and 8 he said, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. When Jesus came, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. Desire of Ages 1.23 Let us observe that Christ had two purposes in this. One, he needed to be enabled in his humanity to live the law of God. And secondly, in Desire of Ages 6.75, that by partaking of the divine nature, we also might live the law. Thank God. Again, I keep reading. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, man becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Now, this explains that amazing quotation of Ellen White found in Bible Commentary 7, 929. Jesus could only keep the commandments of God in the same way that humanity can keep them. So, you see, he doesn't have something that you and I can't have. He came bringing the Holy Spirit with him. And he offers that power to you and to me that we might have the same power that he had. Consider when Jesus entered this world from his first entrance, even before he was old enough to make decisions, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Here is the answer to why Christ as a child could live without sin. Christ did not come to earth separated from the Holy Spirit. He had an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he brought the Holy Spirit from heaven with him.
And that same power by which he was conceived was the power that remained in his life every moment of his life. In Mount of Blessings 132, the Holy Spirit is the greatest of all gifts. So he brought the greatest gift. And you read over in Christ Object Lessons, page 419, in the great and measureless gift of the Holy Spirit are contained all of heaven's resources. I'm talking about the greatest power of the universe. He brought it with him. This is why he was able to overcome. But brothers and sisters, he wants to bestow that same power to you and to me. He was kept by the Holy Spirit and when old enough to choose for himself, he chose to maintain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit every moment of his life. In Signs of the Times, December 3, 1902, he had this example in the use of structure, April 25, 1901. The enemy <clears throat> was overcome by Christ in his human nature. How? He overcame relying upon God for his power. And I want to tell you, you and I have got to learn this lesson ourselves. This is what we must do every day. Christ in his humanity, sometimes he prayed all night. Sometimes he got up way before day, pleading with God. Never once in his life on this earth did he ever choose to separate from the power of God. And that was his secret. And this is the only way that we too, as a small remnant, can overcome the devil by being born again and receiving of the Holy Spirit. We must never choose to try to do it alone. We will fail positively. In Signs of the Times, April 21, in one way only could such a life be sustained. Jesus lived in dependence upon God and communion with him. As a man, he supplicated the throne of God till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that connected humanity with divinity. And his example is to be ours. And so, in your family worship, as you're doing the dishes, as you're driving the car, we pray for so many things. Oh, help me with this, and may this finance be taken care of this way, and may I have thy protection of thy angels. But how many times are we asking God, give me the divine power of the omnipotent, that I may overcome as you overcome. God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. This must be our prayer in Desire of Ages 6363. Through continual communion, he received life from God that he might impart life to the world. His experience is to be ours. In the re restoration of the divine nature, testimonies to ministers 435, 
men and women who once bore the image of God, but are lost by disobedience and sin. He means to restore, how? Through their becoming partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. And then, Bible Commentary 7, page 926, and this that he might restore to man the original mind which was lost in Eden through Satan's alluring temptations. What was our text? Let this mind be in you. What mind? A mind that was in complete dedication to the Holy Spirit, complete surrender was in absolute, complete power of the Almighty. That is why he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, he wants our minds to become his temple, a place where he may indwell. Desire of Ages 161, the heart of man becomes his temple. And this is how the new covenant is realized in our lives. Listen, Jeremiah 31, 33. And this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be to them their God and they shall be to me my people. A remnant, a small remnant, but praise God, a people that be ready to meet Jesus. How reassuring that if we are connected with God through the Holy Spirit, we can resist the devil. I want to bring you somehow a message this afternoon of assurance, of power, that there is victory. There is nothing of failure in God's power. He never fails. The almighty power of God, the omnipotent power, can overcome and lick the devil in everything. And we need this power. In Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890, the enemy knows that when divine strength is added to human weakness, man is able with a power and an intelligence that he can break away from the captivity which has bound him. And that's what I need, don't you? God has made this possible. You see, Adam lost this in the garden, but Jesus came to fully restore it. Bible Commentary 7, 925, he came as a helpless babe, bearing the humanity we bear, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. He came not in the form of an angel, for unless he could meet man as man and testify by his connection with God that divine power was not given to him in a different way to what it will be given to us, he could not be our perfect example. But thank God we can be like him. We can reach out. And he tells us in Selected Messages 1408, humanity must copy the pattern. And this is how we are born again, to receive life, 
Divire Vages 675. The soul that is dead in trespasses and sins receives life when connected with Christ. And so we must receive this life. And when we receive it, we must unite with him. Signs of the Times, September 26, 1892. The important thing is to become united in Christ. The question to ask is, am I a partaker of the divine nature, represented as being born again? And so as we unite, then he gives us this new mind. Signs of the Times, November 15. The mind is an invisible agent of God to produce tangible results. There must be a new birth and a new mind through the operation of the Spirit of God. This connection with God will fit man for the glorious kingdom of heaven. Thus we become partakers of the divine nature. Let no one tell you, let no one tell you that it is legalism to follow Jesus. For this is the only way that we can receive the divine power that he received. Now let me review a few things for you as I turn over to Isaiah, this same chapter. Here in Isaiah 1, notice what it says here now. It says to the remnant, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like under Gomorrah. And then he tells us in verse 11, it's not your offerings that he's interested in. Let me read it. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? saith the Lord. I am full of the burnt offerings and the rams and the fat of bed, fled, uh, fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. And then he tells you, he's not really interested in the fact that you attend church. It says, verse 12, when ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? That's not what he's really interested in. And then he goes on to say, it's not participation in the rituals of worship. For he says, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even your solemn meetings. And it's not attendance at the rallies. It's not attendance at camp meetings that he's interested in. He said, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Then he goes on once more. He says, even your prayers. He is not interested in them unless they are accompanied by true repentance. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Well, then what is he really looking for in our lives? Verse 16, wash you, make you clean, 
Put away the evil doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. He wants us to be victorious over sin. And I just cannot help it as the Lord draws nearer and nearer to his remedy. There comes upon me as his minister the feeling that we're not ready, that a message must be given that we must totally overcome. This should be the greatest burden of our lives, the greatest burden of our prayers, the anticipation to reach out and to completely take the power of God. It's absolutely impossible for us to become partakers of the divine nature unless we are willing to do as Jesus and to have it indwell within us. In Signs of the Times, April 25, the Son of God has given himself to rescue sinners from everlasting destruction. To do this, Jesus imputes his own righteous obedience to the one who believes. How beautiful. He puts his robe upon us. He stands us up before God and says, look, there's not a sin. God, look at my holy life. My robe is covering him. And God looks at you as though you have never sinned. That's what he can do if we completely are involved with the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of Christ and allow the divine nature to dwell within us. And then he goes on, to this Jesus imputes his righteous obedience to the one who believes, and then to complete the rescue, he also imparts his own righteous nature. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have the nature of Christ? You hate sin. You wouldn't touch sin. You would die rather than sin. And that's what I need. And I believe that's the experience that you need. What a gem of thought. All may be partakers of the divine nature. All may overcome. That was from the Heavenly Place book page 280. Every man, every woman, every child, here today, it's within your grasp to be a part of that very small remnant. Thank God. He's given us this power. Will you, with me this week, make it the object of your life and your prayer life, as you have your worship in the morning, to pray, God, this week, make me a partaker of the divine nature. Somehow help me to have a living connection in which that divine power can flow this week. You see, God in Christ and Christ in God, Christ abiding by faith in man. This is the three angels' message. You remember it says, keeping the commandments, how? By the faith of Jesus. If we have his mind within us, we will able, be able to overcome as he overcame. God will never find wild grapes in your character. 
as long as the divine power of God runs through your veins. Make it your prayer to be among God's remnant, that very small remnant, ready to meet him, is my prayer. Loving Father, as we close this Sabbath service here, somehow, Lord, we want to forget about the church at large as it is going its way toward Babylon. And somehow today, we would turn to thee and pray that we may be that very small remnant that you are preparing to meet heaven, that within our hearts we may feel the divine power, that we may feel that robe being placed upon us of thy righteousness, that the very nature of Jesus can be implanted into our minds. May the challenge of our scripture be a reality in our lives. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.